0: Really what we're talking about is energy poverty from people who have no access to people who have poor access. And and this is a scenario that happens all over the world, especially in developing world. The energy access component is a very critical component for health, education, income. Those who have the least income are spending the most on energy. And that's the problem, fundamentally. Welcome to Energy in Conversation, a look
1: into our energy future through the eyes of people leading the way. I'm your host, Dean Somerville. This is the last episode of our first season, so we're looking at a big global challenge, access to energy. I'm joined today by two guests. Welcome, Malcolm and Anshul. Could you please introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about your organizations?
2: I'm Malcolm Brindid, a past president of the Energy Institute and a trustee of the Shell Foundation for years. And we focus on supporting early stage enterprises with technology and business solutions for the challenges of energy and mobility in the developing world.
0: My name is Anshul Patel. I'm the Chief Commercial Officer at Beebox. We are a company with a mission to transform lives and unlock potentials through access to energy.
1: To set the scene for this episode, the United Nations has set out 17 Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, and each highlights a global challenge uh, for human well-being and quality of life. The big question we're setting out to answer today is, are the two UN SDGs of improving access to energy and tackling climate change compatible? So to start, Malcolm, could you describe the scale of the challenge that we're talking about? Yeah,
2: and Dean, I'd start by saying, I think they are compatible, but you're right to couple them together. They have to be considered and tackled together, and they're both incredibly urgent. Um, I think the climate change challenge is familiar. Um, But the access to energy challenge is often unappreciated and underestimated, especially in the OECD world, the privileged world. But there are still 3 billion people who uh, basically cook on dirty stoves and uh, and biomass based on dung, wood and charcoal inside their homes with all the uh, problems of the indoor air pollution that causes. There's almost a billion people with access to affordable uh, power and reliable power. And actually, there's, there's almost 5 billion people living on less than $8 a day. And the reason for that, that poverty, in most cases, is the lack of affordable energy, which in turn leads to all the problems and
0: lack of economic growth that that brings. Anshul, uh, how
1: do you see the scale
0: um, from your work? I do agree with Malcolm about the uh, the, the numbers here. I mean, we're, we're talking five billion people globally, and I'd actually add one more component of this, which is not always clear for people, but it's actually the, the scenario where there's a weak grid or, or weak access to electricity. So really, really what we're talking about is energy poverty from people who have no access to people who have poor access. and And this is a scenario that happens all over the world, especially in the developing world. To the point around uh, SDG, we can't treat them independently. Because the energy access component is a very critical component for the others, health, education. Those who have the least income are spending the most on energy. And that's the problem, fundamentally. And that's translating into every other issue you see. Could, could you give an example, uh, when you say uh, not reliable
1: grid or not reliable energy, can you give an example of what that looks like?
0: Yeah, sure. So in our operations, um, we 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 serve two sets of customers, the, the peri-urban class and, and the rural customer base. Uh, and giving you two examples, um, let's take in East Africa, um, Rwanda, moderate population. Um, the grid has extended quite far out across the country, but in rural areas, there are customers who have no access to the grid and will not see it for the foreseeable future. So that's one type of customer. They're heavily underserved and they will remain underserved because it's simply not economic to get to them uh, with traditional means. right? In another context, our, we do some business in Goma, in the DRC. In Goma, the population is a million within the city itself and uh, obviously slightly more in the per- periphery. There is less than 1% electrification across the country. So you have customers who are poor, have no access. You have customers who are spending more than a couple of dollars per litre of fuel to power generators so that they can actually uh, do business or just live in, in a city like Goma.
2: Think about the, these two challenges together. The reason it's so important is you know, climate change will make life worse for everybody if it's not tackled, and especially actually for the poorer communities in the developing world. But that's, that's something over decades But the urgency of insufficient energy is impacting billions of people's lives today. You know, the lack of water, the lack of food, the lack of hospitals and clinics and businesses and employment and economic growth. Underpinning all of the, all of those problems is lack of access to affordable and reliable energy. And let me just say, it would be great if all of those needs could be met in the near future by affordable renewable energy. It simply can't be because the scale uh, of what is required uh, the change in the energy supply system is so enormous. Can I just put it in context? Today, all the world's uh, solar and wind adds up to less than 3% of total primary energy supply. Now, there's been fantastic progress in both solar and wind. Solar costs down to 20% of what they were a decade ago. Offshore wind costs, even here in the UK, down to 30% of what they were seven years ago. So terrific, but still we start from such a low base that even if renewables grew Faster, much faster than energy supply has ever grown, any energy supply system has ever grown. It would still not keep up with the pace of energy growth in the world, let alone start quickly to displace the 80% of energy that today comes from oil, gas and coal. So, you know, we've got to try and do both, decarbonize the energy system, but grow the energy system. And for the next couple of decades, that growth isn't just going to come from renewables.
1: All right, so both of these challenges are massive, and we can't rely on anything even close to the rates of low carbon energy growth we've seen in the past to meet global demand. But there are companies doing some innovative new things to try to address both challenges, and that includes Anshul's company, Bbox. Could you say a bit about how your company fits into this picture and what
0: it aims to do? I think one point to mo- note here is about what to do with that periphery of consumers who have not been served today there has been a strong view to support these consumers through traditional grid extensions, large power systems, et cetera. But in addition to the decarbonized world that we are thinking about, we also should be thinking about the distribution world and how we change the distribution mix to serve consumers. What do I mean by this? Well, yes, we have grids in Africa, but they are not fully developed. And actually, we have an opportunity here to really transform the way we see energy distributed in Africa, in other developing markets in Asia, etc. The governments don't have all the funds in the world to extend the grids they need to. The population doesn't have the income to make those grid connections economically viable for the providers. And their energy needs are, are actually can be served through a distributed energy product, i.e. a solar home system. So that's what Beebox does, right? Bbox serves those customers through... Um, a solo home system on a pay-as-you-go model makes it ultra affordable and we provide a service because we know that our consumers are not the experts in maintaining these systems. We do that for them. And obviously the advent of mobile money, the digitization, this is an immense transformation because customers are able to just in their homes, take their mobile phones and make a payment and a light is switched on. Could you say quickly
1: what a solar home system is? As in, what are its components and how do they work?
0: Solar home system is made up of a few components. The first is a solar panel. The second is what we'd call a control unit, which actually has charging electronics, uh, battery management, and a battery. And the third component are all the appliances. So lights, phone charging, cables, TVs, maybe fridges and fans. Um, So when we refine talk about a solar home system, we're talking about some variant of that.
1: And so what does life look like for one of your customers before and after having one of your solar home systems installed?
0: Let me take you through an example that I uh, experienced um, about a year back. We went to a rural household in Rwanda and our objective was to cook for a family. We got to a consumer's house um, in uh, northwest Rwanda in a province called Musanze. Um, from, from, from the town, it was probably about uh, an hour's drive to the, the home and then about a 15-20 minute walk through small roads. Um, the house we went to had uh, about two bedrooms. It had a family of about five or six in the house and the neighbors were anywhere between 100 meters and a few kilometers away. The uh, house had no connection to electricity. What's interesting in Rwanda is that the house has had, uh, by government mandate, uh, a really clean set of walls and a roof, uh, which has been great. But um, there was no adequate flooring. There was no electricity, of course. They had a B-box solution. The kitchen was actually outside the house because of the fumes. And so, yeah, that's the dynamic of a household. The husband was, uh, in this case, actually a local government official. Uh, but typically it's either a farmer, a subsistence farmer, or um, some business trader. The lady of the house uh, ran the house uh, and, and and then... In in most cases, the kids uh, generally were, were were able to go to school. Uh, many examples of why they might not have been able to do that in some cases, but um, their income, as we've talked about, was probably not more than 100, $120 uh, in a month uh, as a family. That's a brilliant illustration of the billions of people
2: who are living in, in relative energy poverty, uh, and as well as at the home level. I think it's important to realise that the lack of access to affordable and reliable energy means insufficient water, insufficient food, an unproductive agricultural system because so much food is wasted because of lack of refrigeration, uncompetitive industries so you don't have the employment and you don't have the economic growth, inadequate clinics, hospitals and and, and medicine distribution, urban commuters spending 30% or more of their money on dirty and unsafe transportation. And, and of course, schools without proper lighting and heating and for hundreds of millions of people. So the, these are you know, huge challenges and it's, it needs the whole system needs more energy.
0: Having operated for the last close to 10 years now in Africa and in Asia, one of the things we've seen is that our consumers need more than the electricity we provide to them. And it turns out that most of our consumers spend about 50 cents a day for their cooking needs. So we've 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 had a strong look at this, had a look through all the solutions that are available today and that we see will be possible in the near future. And it turns out that gas is, LPG gas in particular, is a solution that the most efficient and actually quite carbon friend, friendly for our consumers. We're actually building technology that allows um, this to be served on a pay as you go basis to our consumers in a transformational way again. As I said, energy is our uh, the problem we're trying to solve and tackle. We start with electricity, uh, and we're now moving into the cooking space, both through LPG and, in some cases, biodigesters for biogas. So why is it that you can't
1: electrify cooking in the same way that you can electrify lighting and charging your mobile phone?
0: It's about energy efficiency. In the case of cooking, you need an incredible amount of power to electrify it. And simply put, finding a cooking solution through a solar system is just not efficient enough, right? It doesn't deliver the power that you need. And fundamentally, it will change consumers' habits as well. If you wanted to make this possible, you would need to uh, change the behavior in how people cook, right? Uh, And that's simply something that's quite a large challenge to solve alone. Uh, and, and the introduction will take some time. So it's not impossible, and I'm sure we'll see solutions coming through in the future. Uh, but as of today, and at least for the next decade, as I see it, electricity is not the right form. Gas makes the best sense. How would you have to change how people cook? So just give you a simple example. The cooking solutions I've seen today, um, it's 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 a cooking pot that you would need to put everything into it. Uh, you lock it up. And you connect that up to your pa- your solar panel. Um, and then basically you make sure that's done before you leave the house in the morning and you have to wait for it to be cooked through during the course of the day, traditionally households tend to cook in the evenings. Uh, And, uh, you know, they'll spend three to five hours doing this in the evenings uh, as a one-off. So just having to pre-plan and prepare in advance, a day in advance, etc., is something that people don't know how to do. And sometimes some of the ingredients they use need to be, uh, they don't have a storage facility for them. So they kind of cannot do all of that straight away. The issue around cooking is an incredibly important one. Those three
2: billion people who cook uh, today on on the most basic of of, uh, stoves inside their house with incredible inefficiencies in the use of wood, it leads to deforestation, it leads to indoor air pollution, something that kills four million people a year, mostly women and children. That's actually more than HIV, TB and malaria combined. It is one of the great sort of unspoken about challenges. Uh, And I completely agree with Anshul. I think pay-as-you-go LPG will be an important part of the solution. I actually also think that cleaner biomass cookstoves are the first step, uh, something that the Shell Foundation has been working with partners for over a decade. But it is very interesting how much easier it is to get support for rural electrification through solar home systems, but nobody really finds the cooking sector attractive enough or important enough to put funds into. Certainly some of the development aid goes there, but we can get very little commercial finance into that space. Why do you think that is? Frankly, what is needed to address access to energy and climate change together we need patient capital and support during the research and development phase and to help accelerate the scale up. Although lots of people talk about social investment and impact investing, the numbers who are really prepared to go in early stage and support new and innovative entrepreneurs with their their product development and help them take it to difficult markets, the number of organisations doing that is very limited. I'd, I'd just also like to touch on the fact, because Angela raised it absolutely rightly with the cooking example. Uh, solar home systems are brilliant, but they, they are only the first step on the energy ladder. To actually really address access to energy, energy for business, uh, energy for agriculture is going to be crucial. Let me take the agricultural example. There are one and a half billion smallholder farmers in the world, and they are basically amongst some of the poorest and most vulnerable people trying to improve agricultural productivity for the smallholder farmer is you know, the next step up from providing solar home systems, but probably even more
0: important. I fully agree, actually. I don't think anyone solved the productivity question yet, uh, you know, in a way that makes scalable sense and is very attractive to financiers. You know, that solution is, is not quite ready yet. Interestingly, what we've found is in our portfolio, in certain markets, I would say the average customer of ours are actually smallholder farmers. They are all looking for some other solution from us. And so we're going back to the point about innovation and the sheer challenge of what we're trying to do, right? I mean, Box started off with a very simple idea. We want to serve and provide electricity to everyone in the world who doesn't have it, right? It turns out the solution is not quite as simple as manufacturing and designing a product, the other parts, which I haven't got into yet, uh, around the financing. What is the right financing structures that we can employ? What terms we get? We're we're a young business, right? And the commercial capital Malcolm's talked about, we started off getting a six-month loan, right? And that's hard for a business like us to be able to serve the customers at the price points we want to. As, of course, it's one of the many problems. But at the same time, you do have capital available in the world that stretches to 50 years or 40 years in terms of very low cost of capital so i think how we attract that capital and create the infrastructure to be able to scale that up is, is is going to be super important and then i'll add two more components to this um one is around well subsidies this is an essential component of energy access and delivering energy access governments are spending millions of dollars in kerosene subsidies or fuel subsidies and very few have started providing some mechanism for solar home systems. I think there's an important transition that's happening here. It's very powerful. I think the last component I'd add is that, well, we've got an opportunity with climate finance, right? And governments are also central to this. Uh, I think Anshul's exactly right. I mean, getting the funds that are available and are coming
2: available in climate finance to be channeled towards the products that can make a huge difference to access to energy in the developing world. this, This must be a solution that is bridgeable. Often with these companies it isn't just developing the product and the technology. As angel touched on it, it is the ecosystem. It's the, the financing for the consumers. It's the financing for the distributors. It's the last mile distribution. And in some cases, it's just changing the government regulations and fiscal system like the subsidy systems, to make sure it's channeled to enable and support these products. In many countries in Africa, solar home systems are still, you know, VAT is charged on them, or there are regulations around mini-grid development in which the monopoly state power utility is able to essentially restrict competition from that source, Mm. despite the fact that the pace at which mainstream grid connections are being added in Africa falls behind the pace at which the population is growing. So uh, you cannot tackle those off-grid just by grid extension. It has to be through solar home systems and mini-grids, and both those sectors need much
0: more support. We've got a really interesting time here. I think solar home systems companies in general are actually deploying electricity connections much faster than uh, any traditional utility. Our stats show that we're probably deploying in Rwanda five to ten times the number of connections on a monthly basis than the national grid is able to do. You know, we're looking at a approximately two hundred dollar connection versus anywhere between 1000 to $2,000 a connection, which is heavily subsidized. So I think this was the point about efficiencies I was making earlier on. And and actually what Bbox is doing, by the way, is we develop what we call the next generation utility to deploy distributed solar home systems in a country as the entry point to, to a consumer's home. Uh, and then look at all the other value services that could be generated and delivered. And I think this is an important point here because there is no way that someone like Bbox is going to be able to do all the tech, all the distribution and all the financing in the world. We need to really work as an ecosystem together.
2: I, I just think that the whole solar uh, home system uh, industry and especially the pay-as-you-go aspect is a really interesting example as well of how this isn't about one technology. It's about a bunch of technologies coming together and a changed business model. So it's taken you know, the efficiency of, of LED lighting, And a PV module cost reduction and more efficient batteries and mobile networks and mobile money that then has sort of unlocked a different business model where essentially companies like Beebox are increasingly in consumer financing. They're consumer financing organizations helping the consumers afford on a pay-as-you-go basis to get light on a daily cost less than they used to pay
0: on kerosene for one dirty and, and, and dingy lamp. One other technology that's uh, uh, which 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 Malcolm you didn't mention, but I think is important here, is about uh, connectivity and data, right? So you mentioned mobile money. One thing Beebox has been doing since inception is using the IoT infrastructure, the Internet of Things technology for all our solar home systems. So each one of these solar home systems are remotely monitored and controlled. Uh, and what does this help us with? We have some really interesting insights about how consumers use their product every day. When is the TV turned on? How long the lights are switched on? We're getting to a point where we can use this data to enable uh, a new a new way of thinking about climate finance, and uh, if I could dwell on this slightly, carbon finance in particular has started off with big systems and big projects, and has never there's no real system that's been designed for. Um, distributed uh, energy assets across the world so what we think we could do is use the consumption data from each one of our consumers and this is live every day coming through to us which actually can link into the world of subsidies as well right very powerful that you can transparently see where your funds are going who's using them what class of customer um, we have all that data and actually there is a ton of powerful data and rich mm-hmm. data available to make this this change happen
1: So that would be directing finance essentially to people because you can now see how much carbon emissions they're avoiding? Correct, and yeah. get it certified in, in
2: a way that will give satisfaction to the people who want, to you know, exactly. to, to carbon markets to to support in a properly certifiable way efficient and effective carbon markets. And frankly, all of the products that are being discussed—solar home systems, irrigation systems—these are all actually and cleaner cookstoves. They've all got a carbon benefit, and it would be great to see carbon finance being channeled towards them. So far, it has been
0: quite difficult to do, but there are now, I think, lots promising opportunities out there and maybe one point to add here is is, is this is not just about getting an additional dollar i think the real challenge businesses like we face we started with this idea that we're a social enterprise we've always had a commercial focus and and you know we know that we recognize as a company that we need to find sustainability and profitability in one way or form there is necessity to invest in low-carbon projects right Um, i can't see a better way of channeling those funds. Uh, transparently than in the way I describe. As we grow the energy demand and as we grow energy access, how do we
1: start to decarbonize from your view? Really important question. Uh, I think
2: that there are some huge uh, opportunities. I would say the most important is to look at the comparison today of gas and coal. Uh, coal still provides 60% of the primary energy in China uh, and uh, an increasing amount in still in, uh, growth of power supply in India from coal. Both of those are great opportunities to decarbonise obviously by growing as quickly as possible the percentage of renewables in the mix, but also gas displacing coal is an immediate win, not just in halving the CO2 emissions, but in also improving the urban air quality and the problems of particulates, NOx and SOx, which also comes from coal-fired power. So I do think that for the next couple of decades, both speeding up renewables and speeding up the transition from coal to gas are going to be equally important. The challenge of meeting both SDG 7 around access to energy and climate change are about the non-OECD world. They're about the emerging markets and less developed economies where more than 6 billion people live and where their energy needs are not met today and are increasing very fast. So Asia Pacific will need 30 to 40 percent more energy than today by 2040. Africa will need 50 to 60 percent more energy by 2040. 40 and that has to come from somewhere so yes renewables can grow and should grow at as fast a pace as can be financed and and implemented but it grows from this very low base of less than three percent of the primary energy in the world today that is going to have to come from more gas-fired power if we're not going to see more coal-fired power but also think of the distribution challenges what's going to happen to freight the prospects for electrification of of that in the next decade or two are not very high. In order to meet the needs of the developing world, those six billion people, emerging middle class of billions who have aspirations as well, the the total global freight is expected to increase by something like 150% by 2040, 2050. So I just want to stress it would be wonderful if the world could, uh, could support energy growth and access to energy entirely in low carbon ways. I think in the next decade or two, that is going to, it is going to require both the ma- most rapid build out of renewables possible and substantially more gas and some more oil for a while to come. And the frameworks, as Anshul uh, suggested, the economic and financial frameworks that will bring the money and the capacity to the uh, technologies and enterprises that can deliver at
1: scale. What do you feel most positive about in terms of meeting these challenges together, access to energy and climate change?
0: On a personal level, I'm part of a, um, an association where we meet you know, once every few months, and we're, there's a so- huge social agenda being put together. That's becoming an increasing awareness for every company, like what is the social agenda you're trying to solve and how can you tackle it? What I like really about what we do is that um, you know, we live and breathe that social agenda every day, uh, and we're trying to figure out how to make it happen. Um, so, uh, I mean, it's great to see the support for it. I
2: feel really positive about obviously the pace of technological change, which you know, in the examples we've talked about has far exceeded the pace that was expected a decade ago. But I really feel really positive about how actually global youth is so focused on climate change and on the issue of, of access to energy as key issues. And, and the great thing is that's also right across the developing world. So were very involved also in supporting uh, African uh, and Asian entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs with business startups uh, and it's incredible to see the ideas and the drive and the passion to actually address these challenges uh, and, and we need thousands such businesses and entrepreneurs and we need billions of dollars being uh, channeled effectively to support the, the research, the development and the scale-up of these businesses.
1: Great. Well, thank you both. That was really interesting. Thanks again to today's guests, Malcolm Brinded and Anshul Patel. And thank you for listening. This is the final episode of our first season, and we'd really like to hear your thoughts on what we've covered so far and ideas for our next season, which will be later in 2020. Please get in touch with us by tweeting to at Energy Institute. You can find further reading for all of our episodes on our podcast page at energy-inst.org slash podcast. Energy in Conversation is brought to you by the Energy Institute. This episode was produced by Sarah George and Daniel DeVeza. Music on this episode is by Jack Keeney. I'm your host, Dean Somerville. Thanks for listening.